Thank you for tuning into this webinar, Business Owner's Guide to Valuation. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH. AGH's team of corporate finance professionals works with business owners planning for business transitions or transactions, such as sale or acquisition of a business, family business transfers, or seeking new or additional financing through the capital markets. Business valuation, the process of determining a fair market value for an organization, is often a critical part of business transitioning and is used for many other purposes as well. Today's speakers are Emily Kiesling and Holly Rook. Emily works with both individuals and businesses, including manufacturing and vehicle dealerships, as well as estates and trusts. She's a member of the American Institute of CPAs, Kansas Society of CPAs, and the KSCPA's 20 up to 40 class. Emily earned a bachelor's degree in accounting from the University of Kansas and a master's degree in accounting from Wichita State University. Holly provides business and bank valuation and financial advisory services related to regulatory compliance, corporate planning, gift and estate planning, and employee benefits planning such as ESOPs and stock options plans. She brings more than eight years of experience working closely with financial institutions and more than 10 years specializing in business valuation. Holly's previous positions were in public accounting, including serving as a financial advisory services consultant at a large national firm, and she's an accredited senior appraiser of the American Society of Appraisers in its business valuation discipline. So if you own or lead a business, there are many reasons you may need to know how much it's worth. A potential sale is only one. Others could include long-term financial and strategic planning or gifting. Learning your business's value may seem intimidating or difficult, but it doesn't need to be. In this webinar, we'll address some commonly asked questions regarding business valuation and give you tools to evaluate and understand the finished product. Good morning. Let's go ahead and jump into our learning objectives for today's webinar. We're going to outline the steps in the business valuation process, learn when, why, and how often a business valuation should be conducted, and also eliminate some common business valuation myths and address commonly asked questions. So first, let's jump into our first polling question. It is, what's your experience with the business valuation process? Were you involved when your company was valued? Involved when your company or a client's valuation? Do you prepare business valuations? Maybe you have not had a business valuation but might have one in the future? Or have no involvement with valuation but wanted some free CPE today? Looks like the answers are coming in. Looks like most have not had evaluation, but might in the future. So thank you for answering. We'll go ahead and close the polls. It's interesting just for us to see right at the beginning what your experience with business valuation is. So now I want to give some brief insight into the type of companies we valued recently. This list on the screen is not all inclusive, but you'll see we've recently valued restaurants, construction companies, banks, and manufacturers. These companies all had various legal entity structures and a variety of ownership makeups. When doing valuation work, we have to consider a number of unique industries and markets. We need to gain an understanding about each one because different industries and markets may be impacted by economic and demographic factors in different ways. In fact, even within an industry, the impact may vary. For example, take the restaurant industry. Compare your local 50 cent per taco taco shop to your classy high-end steakhouse. If the economy is doing well and people have pockets full of cash, they're probably more likely to dine at that high-end steakhouse. But if funds are tight but they still want to eat out, they're probably more likely to go for those cheap tacos. So the relationship between the industry and the economic factors is an important part of business valuation. Valuation is forward-looking, not historical. So in valuation, we research the economic and industry outlooks 
to determine how predicted factors will influence a company's future. It's important to take time to understand the factors that influence a specific industry and the company so the value is more supportable. So what events might be triggers for valuation? Perhaps a change in ownership. This could be a change in ownership caused by the gifting of ownership, the death of an owner, or the sale of ownership. A fair market value valuation is required for the gift tax return, which is Form 709. The 709 reports the transfer of ownership from one person to another by way of a gift. A fair market value valuation is also required for an estate tax return, which is Form 706, and it's for the decedent's estate. Evaluation may also be conducted before the sale of ownership from one party to another to determine what that fair and reasonable price is. Even without a change in ownership, employee stock ownership plans, also known as ESOPs, are required by the Department of Labor and the Internal Revenue Service to have an annual valuation by an independent third party. An ESOP is a Qualified Defined Contribution Employee Benefit Plan, an ERISA plan and the ESOP's investment is in the employer's stock. Beyond compliance, this annual valuation sets the fair market value price for the buyback of departing employee's stock. Also, an employee stock in option incentive plan also requires valuation work. Generally, an initial valuation is performed to determine the value at which shares can be purchased in the future. A new valuation may be conducted at a future date to reprice the options to reflect the change in value. In some companies, stock option incentives can be a significant factor in their compensation packages. So we've discussed a few times valuation is necessary. Now let's look at some additional motives for a third-party valuation. We've covered a few of these already, but let's go over all of them at least briefly. A potential gift transfer to an heir or family member. This could include gifting a few shares at a time to children, grandchildren, or others, or gifting an entire company to one of those individuals or to a trust. As mentioned before, that valuation report is going to be attached to the gift tax return filed with the IRS. Next, receive non-biased conclusion of fair market value. When you're so closely involved with a company, whether as a management owner or an investment owner, it can be difficult to look realistically at the big picture of your company. Evaluation can help shed light on the true value of the company. Evaluation report can also provide relevant industry and benchmark data that can be applied to the operations of the business. Evaluation analysts can point out some of the company's strengths and weaknesses compared to other industry members, which can help spur future progress of the company. Next, preparation for retirement. If you are an active owner-manager of a company, you need to be thinking about succession planning for when you step down and enjoy your retirement. You may desire to turn operations and ownership of the company over to family, current employees, or an outside third party. In these transitions, you'd want to obtain evaluation. Receiving evaluation prior to when you step back can help you plan for the amount of money you may receive and can help potential buyers determine if they have adequate funding for a purchase. You may need a third-party valuation to resolve an estate settlement. We've already discussed the requirement for evaluation to determine the fair market value of ownership in a person's estate. 
the analyst and the report are advocates for the value, so the analyst can help support the value should it come under any IRS scrutiny. Next, to motivate employees via stock options or appreciation rights. We've discussed the valuation needs for stock option plans and similar reasons apply to stock appreciation rights. Stock appreciation rights provide a bonus, either in money or shares, for the increase in equity value of the company times a percentage of payroll expense. So if the bonus payment is going to be based on the increase in equity value of the company, the company needs to know what that change is. This would require an initial valuation when the stock appreciation rights are granted and evaluation at each point required by the agreements. Also, evaluation may be required for compliance with loan agreements and documents. Your loan officer may require an annual valuation since this provides beneficial forward-looking data about your company in addition to that historical financial information you provide them. Evaluation may even be important to help a company and its owners understand the internal rate of return or the rate of return where the investment into a business equals the value of the business. So now that we've looked at who needs valuations and when they are needed, let's take a look at what you can expect during the process. Normally, a typical valuation will take four to six weeks from the receipt of initial data to the issuance of a report. When beginning the process, it's important for you and the valuation analyst to identify the following aspects. The purpose of the valuation. Is this for gifting, estate planning, ESOP requirements, or something else? The valuation date. You also need to consider will that valuation date correspond to your business year end, or is interim financial data going to be available? Also, you need to identify what is being valued. Is 100% of the company being valued, or only 5%, or maybe only a single share? This question will help determine the level of value, which Holly will discuss later in the presentation. This information, the purpose, the valuation date, and what is being valued will be clarified in an engagement letter to confirm you and the analyst have the same understanding of the work to be completed. Next, you'll receive an information and document request from the analyst. This will often include financial information such as financial statements, tax returns, budgets or projections, and detail of any related party transactions. The analyst may also want non-financial information such as articles of incorporation, company bylaws, buy-sell agreements, existing contracts, whether that's with customers, suppliers, or employees, and any trade association information you may have. You should also inform the analyst of any previous transactions involving company stock. This detail would include the sale price and how it was determined, whether the parties were independent of each other, and things of that nature. These previous transactions may be used by the analyst as an indication of the current value. So the financial and non-financial information provides crucial information to the analyst but there's so much more to your company than, and its operations than what appears on these documents. So the analyst may ask you additional questions such as, what are your primary markets? This will help identify whether your market is isolated or broad and whether the market's economy is growing or shrinking. They may ask, who are your largest customers and what percent of sales do they represent? 
This will help identify how dependent the company is on one or a few customers. If the majority of the customers are in the aircraft industry, the analyst may review aircraft industry data in addition to the subject company's industry. The concentration of the customers may help explain increases and decreases in revenues if the customers are highly concentrated in either a growing or shrinking industry. Another question would be, do you sell to governments or government agencies? If so, this may indicate that you have met specific requirements that not every company in your industry has, or this may mean that you would be impacted by increases or decreases in government spending. Another question would be, how easily can you find competent employees? And how easily can your officers and managers be replaced? Competent employees and leaders are critical to the longevity of a company. Perhaps officers and managers have specialized skills or connections that make them a key person. And without an appropriate succession plan, the company may decline quickly after the, the departure of that person. Another question would be, what are your company's strengths and weaknesses? This is something we'd want to see through your eyes rather than just trying to glean the information ourselves from your internal documents and financial statements because you know the answers to those questions much better than we do. Another question the analyst might ask is, what are your opinions regarding growth expectations for your industry? You are in the industry and very familiar with it, so where do you see it headed? Is your market becoming saturated with certain products or services? Another question would be, what are the company's future goals and long-term plans? Knowing whether the company plans on expanding its facilities or expanding into new markets or perhaps eliminating a less successful product line are all factors that would impact the future of the company. Whether they are positive or negative changes, they would all make the future of the company different from the past, which is what we're looking at, the future outlook of the company. So if you're interested in receiving a list of common questions, feel free to reach out to us either through the chat feature during the webinar or afterwards via email and we can provide that information to you. After this information is received, the analyst is going to begin analyzing the information and preparing the calculations. Then you should expect an in-person or over-the-phone interview where the analyst will ask you probably another 10 to 20 questions, either similar in nature to the questions I previously mentioned or as follow-up to information you sent. This additional data will help the analyst prepare strong calculations and provide relevant supporting information in the valuation report. Next, a draft valuation report will be issued to you, the client. You'll have an opportunity to review the report, ask questions, and provide additional or clarifying information. There are times where the client may disagree with the value provided in the report. In that case, we discuss our reasoning behind the value with our client. Sometimes you, the client, are aware of facts and circumstances we were not aware of and the report may be updated. Other times, no new evidence arises and we must remain advocates for our value and the value will stand. After the draft report and the discussions regarding it, a final report will be issued to you and you'll receive copies for your use and your records. So as you can see, the valuation process doesn't need to be intimidating. If you still have any questions or concerns about the process, feel free to reach out to us to schedule a free one-hour meeting to get your questions answered. In evaluation, the information required is fairly straightforward, much like you keep for other purposes, 
like tax preparation, business operations and planning, insurance, or something else. The questions asked enabled you to share about your company and the work that you do because no one knows your business better than you. Your knowledge of the, your company paired with a qualified valuation analyst or team of analysts will develop a valuation report that can withstand the scrutiny of outside parties. So now that you've had an introduction into the process, I'm going to hand things over to Holly to address some of our clients' frequently asked questions. Thank you, Emily, for explaining the who, the what, the why, and also the process that you can expect when performing a business valuation. I would like to segue into our frequently asked questions portion of our webinar. So you may still be wondering what some of the nuts and bolts of our analysis look like. The largest portion of real estate within our report is comprised of the valuation analysis section. This leads us to our first question. Which method or approach is the best to use when determining the value of the company? As you can see on this slide, there are three approaches that are commonly used and underneath each three, there are th other methods under each approach. So for the majority of our valuations, we provide an analysis using a method under the income and the market approach. As Emily mentioned earlier, the valuation is prepared on a forward-looking basis. For that reason, it is important to view the company's earnings capacity for the future and what the market believes is a reasonable price for a similar company. The income and market approaches when provided together in a valuation report can also strengthen the valuation evaluator's position with the IRS or in a litigation set setting. The most common approach to valuing a company is the income-based approach. Underneath the income-based approach, we see the discounted future cash flow method and the capitalization or capitalized cash flow method. It's important for your valuation consultant to consider the company's projected growth and projected earnings when considering the use of these methods. The reason I say this is because the two methods listed by the income approach are considered mutually exclusive. The DCF method or the discounted cash flow method considers growth and earnings that have not yet stabilized. For instance, Let's say that we're valuing a relatively new company, or let's say that this company, maybe it's been established, but it's entering a growth cycle. We would be able to adjust growth and earnings for a defined period of time and then consider a point where growth and earnings stabilize following that period. On the contrary, the capitalization of cash flow method is regularly used for companies that have reached that stabilization period and its growth and earnings would not fluctuate very greatly in the future. Let's move to the market approach. <clears throat> the two commonly used methods are the guideline transaction method and the guideline public company method. Depending on the size and sometimes the industry of the subject company, 
we will determine which method is best for valuing the company. Smaller sized companies generally can only be compared to other transactions of similar size and also similar industries. Therefore, we would employ the guideline transactions method for smaller sized companies. We would often employ a guideline public company method for larger privately held subject companies. It's important to remember that under both methods of the market approach that you need to have a good understanding and make sure that your comparable companies using those transactions or the public companies are quality comparisons and also that the information is quality information. This is of utmost importance when using the market approach. There are a couple other methods under the market approach that are commonly used. Next one is the past transactions method. And for this method to be considered, there has to be a recent non-related party transaction within the company. Further, the bona fide tr transaction method, which I've only used once in, in my history, is if there is a actual transaction that's on the table um, from a, a third party and the company has a, a very strong um, indication that this will materialize, then we would use the bona fide transaction method. And it's based on the company's actual um, sale price that they're offering for a company to, to purchase their company. The other method would be a rule of thumb, and this is more of a sanity check under the market approach, and we wouldn't necessarily rely on that as a method used in the valuation report, but we would look at it just to make sure that our um, numbers make sense. Also, under certain situations, for an asset-intensive company, we may employ an asset-based approach. The main approach under the asset approach is the adjusted net asset value. And it basically looks at the underlying assets and liabilities of the company, adjust them to fair market value, and then the net book value um, resulting would be the indication of value under the asset-based approach. We typically use these, this approach for a construction-based company or something where they have that where they're very asset intensive and we would use it also in conjunction with an income and a market approach. We prefer to use two approaches in one report just because they strengthen each other's position. When the Income and market approaches are used in tandem or also an, an with an asset-based approach. They're favorably received by the courts and the IRS. For our reports, we employ, like I said, at least two, two methods under each approach. And this gives the valuation analyst further comfort level 
in terms of they can test their assumptions using those um, using those methods and make sure that they're in a reasonable range. For example, if the indications of value using each method are within a close proximity of each other, then the valuation is stronger and more defendable. Let's move on to the next question. What differentiates fair market value from book value equity? You probably heard the term that's commonly used for the value above book value of equity as quote unquote blue sky. Um, I'm going to present this in a different way. On this slide, the graphic here, it does not represent a certain company or um, and it's certainly not to scale, but it's really basically for a visual example of the difference between your company on paper or on its balance sheet and the fair market value of the cumulative assets. So if I'm a captain of the boat in these icy waters, I can see the tangible benefits or assets of my company. However, a company is much more than its cumulative assets net of liabilities. As a business owner, I may have the following intangible assets that are not booked on paper, such as the assembled and dedicated workforce. If I'm a service-based business, this can really come into play and drive the value of my company. Relationships with customers. I spend a lot of time and money retaining my customers or developing those customer relationships that's a very valuable, intangible asset to my company. Brand reputation and the rep recognition of your brand in the industry. Good press strengthens your brand in the marketplace, marketplace and vice versa. If there's been some bad press about your company, it also can have a weakening effect with your brand and your trademark. There are also some other intangible assets that are mentioned here. Supply chain management, intellectual properties such as patents, registered trademarks, etc., and also corporate governance. So as you can think of the invisible benefits to your company, you may recognize that the book value of your company might not be the best indication of the of what the value would be, um, let's say including using an agreement such as a buy sell, and we have often seen this in practice. So you might want to reconsider that having in your buy sell agreement, just making sure that that fair market value level is used as a proxy. Um, as a valuation analyst, I consider the intangible benefits that are wrapped up in the company's value of equity. We're going to move on to our second polling question. And this is just to make sure that you guys are awake. Is book value of equity a good proxy for fair market value? The answers are yes, no, and it depends. It looks like about 40% of you said no, and then 59% said it depends. And I believe that no or it depends is the best answer. 
As stated earlier, sometimes we have employed the adjusted net asset value method for an asset intensive company, but the underlying assets have been adjusted to fair market value. So that would kind of cover the it depends. For the majority of our clients though, the fair market value of the company differs from its net book value. Let's move on to our next question. What is EBITDA and why is it so often used for an earnings measurement? EBITDA stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization and has been a common measurement for a quick cash flow computation of a company. It's inclusive of non-cash charges such as depreciation and amortization. So why is it commonly used? Let's say that I want to compare some of my financial metrics to other companies. Let's say I want to look at profitability and I want to look at if um, other companies are similarly um, profitable to, to my company. I can look at publicly traded companies. I can look at um, maybe some private in information. If I'm able to compare my subject comps um, using EBITDA, I can look at my company at an even playing field. Let's say, just to give you an example, let's say that my company has a different level of debt holding or capital structure than the peers in my industry. So by eliminating the interest, I can neutralize the effect of debt when comparing my sample companies to my particular company. Another um, example of this is if, if my subject company is an S-Corp and they don't pay um, ta uh, corporate taxes, but I'm comparing them to companies that pay um, corporate taxes. Let's say I'm using a public company method and um, all of those companies are C-Corps. I can also neutralize the effect that taxes have on the, value, the profitability of the company. One more example. Let's say that I'm a fixed, I'm very dependent on my fixed assets and maybe my comps or the companies that I'm comparing them to, they might have less dependence on um, their fixed assets. So I have higher depreciation than, than some of my peers. I can also neutralize that out and kind of look at that from an even playing field. So certain industry use this multiple as a quick pricing strategy or a back of the napkin calculation to compute the company's capitalization. What's important to remember is that not, not every value, every company's value is driven by EBITDA and pricing multiples routinely change on buyer sentiments, perception of the company, and industry and economic factors. Have you considered how volatile some public companies are? Well, sometimes the EBITDA can fluctuate quite a bit. Let's move on to my favorite topic. Okay, 
What are the levels of value and why do they matter to a company owner? First of all, this is one of the hardest concepts for business owners to understand and for good reason. There is, after all, only one fair market value indication, right? Well, I really wish that valuation were that simple. And this concept in valuation took the longest for me to understand. So I'm going to show you a slide here. To the left, we're increasing, we're showing an increasing value perception as you reach the top of the triangle. The top of the triangle is considered the highest level of value, which is strategic value. Let's say that I'm a controlling interest shareholder and <clears throat> I am selling shares to a strategic investor. They are able to maximize the benefits for that company and the price that they pay me may have built that strategic level of pricing into that, into that price. Let's say that they have proprietary technology that complements my business's services. There could also be economies of scale that come into play with a strategic buyer. I've heard the term, the sum is greater than the parts, and sometimes in companies that could be the case. So strategic value is not necessarily, it doesn't fall into the realm of fair market value. So let's say I'm a controlling interest shareholder and because I have the ability to manage the company the way I see fit, my shares might be worth slightly more than I would pay to become a minority interest in interest shareholder in the company. Minority interest shareholders usually do not have much of a voice in the company and typically your company's business agreements are worded in such a way that a majority or even a supermajority has the ability to control the outcome of certain decisions. Some of these decisions are the ability to declare dividends, the ability to accept new shareholders, the ability to liquidate the company, and the ability to leverage the company with more debt. There are other examples as well. So as you can see, in the illustration here that the fair market value for a controlling interest owner, they may have a better position to influence the value and realize those benefits than a majority, I'm, I'm sorry, a minority interest owner. Many businesses, business owners have buy-sell agreements and maybe they haven't reviewed them in several years, and the level of value may not be stipulated in those agreements. When preparing or revising a buy-sell agreement, it may be a good idea to differentiate the levels of value, and then detail the level of value for measuring fair market value in the event of a sale to another owner. It's always best to have this in writing. Another reason that I care about the level of value is for transferring wealth to my heirs. This is a very popular method used in estate planning and so far the following discounts have held, held up in court. Let's look at this scale. To move up and down the level of value ladder, there are two common discounts that are applied. The first is the discount for lack of control. 
Remember that a minority owner does not have the ability to influence certain management decisions. For this reason, a discount for lack of control is applied. The next discount, a discount for lack of marketability. As, a as an owner in a privately held company, I'm not able to liquidate my shares to cash as quickly as if, let's say, they were shares of a publicly traded company. So the discount for lack of marketability considers the saleability and the opportunity to convert those quickly into cash. We've also mentioned to clients with buy-sell agreements that they include a table, such as this one, in their documents so that they can specify the level of value that they intend to sell to another party within the company. As always, consult with your legal representatives before you take this advice, but it is a good visual for you and, and your partners to understand that you're going to sell or buy shares at one certain price um, or one certain level of pricing. We have our third polling question. Do you know what the levels of value are in fair market value? This is a give me, but A is strategic marketable level, B is control marketable level, C is minority marketable level, D is minority non-marketable level, and E, all of the above except for A. Okay, we're going to go ahead and share the polling results, and it looks like all of you are right. And if you said E, all of the above except for A, you are spot on. If the company were contemplating a sale of stock, should I seek an appraisal? Okay, I have a personal story, and I'm going to relate that to this. So, Yes, I, I believe that if you're contemplating a sale of stock, that you would want to get some sort of a pricing indication for that stock. My family recently made a large purchase for a used car. Now, I know that this purchase would pale in comparison to the sale of a business or business stock, but hear me out. My husband and I ran the numbers. We looked at comparable models. We looked at Kelly Blue Book. Consumer Reports, etc., we became more confident that the purchase price was at a good price with the information that we had acquired. When selling your company, there is not a lot of information available. Valuation analysts have the experience needed to find the right comparable companies, and we subscribe to many different resources that we pay top dollar for to get that information. I would rather have the most relevant and comparable data when either selling my business interest to a third party or purchasing an interest in a pri privately held company. So at the end of the day, my family's car purchase was something that I felt good about and that we got the best price on the market. Rather than relying on a rule of thumb or a back of the envelope purchase price, we came to the negotiating table to get the best deal. Looks like 70% of you said, yes, you do track that. 17% um, of you said, I don't know, and a, a few of you, it's not applicable. 
Well, I have, I have the answer to that question. If you wanted to track the yearly internal rate of return for a specific company, how do you calculate that? Just to make sure that we're all calculating it the right way. <clears throat> there are two different components that make up the internal rate of return. These are capital appreciation and dividends. Now, I can usually look up the oranges or the dividends portion of the internal rate of return very easily. However, unless I have my stock price determined on an annual or semi-annual basis, I really don't know the apples or the capital appreciation portion of this equation. So let's dive in. Here's the formula for calculating the internal rate of return. Dividends plus discretionary benefits plus unrealized appreciation divided by the beginning of year value of the business. Okay, now hopefully most of you, most of the business owners that are attending this webinar don't have personal expenses running through their annual income statement on their company, but here we have included discretionary benefits in our calculations. Sometimes in lieu of business to, in lieu of dividends to shareholders, business owners may pay a higher than market salary or some other discretionary bonus. I would liken these discretionary benefits to the orange portion of the internal rate of return calculation. Also, <clears throat> the unrealized appreciation is your apples portion of the equation. So as you can see, there are multiple things that go into this equation. Let's actually dive in and look at a real world example. So I'm going to look at a construction company. And to calculate my total market capitalization, I can use the <clears throat> total shares price from the prior period and then the total share price from the ending period. That multiplied by the number of shares that are issued equals my market capitalization. In 2015, it was 1 million. In 2016, it was 1.1 million. When added to dividends, my total, total return was 150,000. Divide that by the prior year valuation, and that computes to my internal rate of return of 15%. The calculation here is simple when we have a reliable value for, per share for both my beginning and ending period. Which leads us to our final question. Why is measuring the fair market value of a company's equity on a recurring basis important? Just like the example of the construction company, there is significant value comprising the apple or the capital appreciation. Most business owners see themselves exiting the company 
either in five years, 10 years, maybe 30 years. If the majority of my net worth is tied up into one investment, I would like to understand the total return on my investment, which can only be measured by performing an annual or recurring, evalu recurring valuation. Furthermore, in our reports, we provide actionable items that can strengthen the company's quote-unquote value drivers. What if you could get an annual evaluation of the performance of your most valuable investment, measure its annual returns of your investment, and get advice for actionable steps related to your company's value drivers? It seems like a good way to measure your goals and provide additional value to your shareholders. This concludes the Frequently Asked Questions section of our webinar. I'm going to turn it back to Mike Ditch to cover any housekeeping or question and answer portion of the webinar. Thank you for attending our webinar. And if you do request, um, we can send you the document request list that Emily mentioned earlier in the webinar via email. Thank you. So Holly and Emily, we had a couple questions come in uh, during the live presentation. The first one that was asked is, what is the difference between a traditional business valuation and the DIY online model I've seen? That's a really good question. Um, the, the DIY model is basically you input your own information into um, the, the website and, um, and then through an algorithm or something like that, it can, can it just spits out um, a value for for your company. Um, on the flip side, what we do is we look at the historical analysis of the company um, for the last five years. We look at trends. We look at um, things to that we would consider non-recurring, and we would normalize for them even before getting to that. Um, part of the valuation where we would um, apply evaluation multiple or something like that. And so I think that with the DIY step or with the DIY method, you kind of skip that initial step and it's a very important step. And the other thing is that the, as a valuation analyst, we're reviewing the comps. We're, we have a lot of scrutiny in terms of which comps we allow. Um, to be compared to our subject company. I'm, I'm not sure um, in terms of other uh, software models out there, but they may not have the same level of scrutiny that we would apply. All right. And then the other question that came in, uh, we should, why should we use EBITDA rather than future cash flows and net earnings? Um, you know, what we tend to use is actually um, the future cash flow. And, you know, EBITDA is more or less a quick cash flow computation, but it does not include, um, it does not include adjustments for, let's say, changes in working capital or capital expenditures, et cetera. So when we're applying that discounted cash flow method or the capitalization of cash flow method, we're going to apply um, the discount rate to to the cash flow to kind of discount that back to fair market value. Um, EBITDA is a commonly used multiple when you're when we're using the market approach, and um, 
And so there are a lot of information um, in terms of comps. They provide information based on their EBITDA. It, it levels the playing field, but, you know, at the end of the day, we, we believe that cash flow is king rather than earnings. Um, and also um, EBITDA in terms of using the market approach, we would consider that applicable.